Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, beginning with verse 19. We are continuing our series called Defiant Hope. And we started this series after Easter. I remember getting a text from my friend George Robertson, and he uh, gave a uh, a request that he was praying for me. So I pray that all that grieve today might have a defiant hope. And I just have meditated on that concept of a defiant hope, and that's what we need. A hope that will stand up against discouragement and despair and grief and depression and fight for its own existence. And hope is not always something easily attained. Uh, sometimes we can just barely hold on. Job knew a great struggle having hope, but he came to the conclusion that even though God would slay me, yet will I trust him. Abraham came to the conclusion that he hoped against hope that although his wife's womb was dead and he was as good as dead, that God could fulfill his promises. And we have seen throughout this series that hope is worth fighting for, and that's what we want to talk about today, how to hold on to your hope. And so look at uh, Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly or unwaveringly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. This is the word of God to God's people. Let's ask God for understanding. Father, thank you for passages like this in the Scripture. Thank you that you inspired men of old to write it. Would you use that same Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and open our eyes and unstop our ears and soften our hearts that we might comprehend it and live by what we, we learn today. And I pray this to the glory of Christ. Amen. I don't know if you read many current trends about Christianity in America, but they're pretty disturbing. That when you look at data and surveys done over the last 20 or 30 years, it is a marked decline in people who believe, believe period, and there is a marked decline in church attendance and church membership. 20 years ago, almost everybody, or a majority, 70% of Americans, claim to be believers and belong to a church, have a membership in the church. Today, that number is under 50% of people in America have a belief and a understanding of the church that they're willing to join. The sad thing about that is the large majority of those people are the young folks from 19 to 30. I try to get 60 in that young category, but it just won't make it. 
But anyway, we have young folks in droves leaving church. Uh, one survey showed that those who went to church weekly growing up in high school within the years of college gave up attending church completely, 70% of them. Now, some of them came back, but 70% gave up uh, going to church and gave up their faith during that time. And you ask people why folks are leaving the church and the reasons are numerous. But one survey asked a group of people who had left, what better group to ask than those who've left, why did you leave the church? And you would be surprised. The, the primary reason that people left the church is the LBGQ, LB, LGBTQ issue. The interesting thing about that is they left conservative churches, but they didn't join liberal churches. The rate of people leaving liberal churches is a great deal larger. So they're, they're doing more than that. The other thing that surprised me, the second most prominent reason for leaving the church was the behavior of Christians. Uh, they thought Christians were sometimes hypocritical or pharisaical or legalistic. The third reason was intellectual integrity. Uh, the fourth reason was exposure to different beliefs. Uh, the fifth reason was education. The sixth reason was politics. But people are tempted when they get out into the world uh, to leave the church they love. And the question would be why? When you look at the letter to Hebrews, it really does answer some of those questions. The people that are, are the recipients of this letter, the author is unknown, but the people that are recipients of this letter are Jewish Christians, people that raised Jewish but was converted to Christianity, and they were tempted to go back to Judaism. And the reason they were tempted to go back is because they really couldn't understand completely justification by faith, but the bigger problem was that they... they they didn't like the pain and problems and persecution and the confiscation of property. If you read down further in, in Hebrews 10, it says, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison, and you joyfully accept the confiscation of your property because you knew yourselves had a better and a lasting possession in heaven. It wasn't really a question why these people wanted to leave. Life was easier. There was no persecution. They could avoid prison. They could avoid, they could avoid losing or having their, their furniture taken. And so what the writer of Hebrews does is he basically tells them to hold on to the hope that they've confessed. To hold on. Don't leave. Don't go back. And the reason you don't go back is because Jesus is better. Now, the writer to Hebrews will give us three exhortations, three heads of lettuce, 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 lettuce. But when he gives those exhortations, they're all built on one fact. They're built on Jesus. They're built on the fact that Jesus Christ is the high priest. That Jesus Christ, through his body dying on the cross, has opened the way to God. And remember when Jesus died and he gave up the ghost and all kind of things happened, but the, but the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two. 
And now, symbolically, God was saying, the, the holy of holies, the entrance into my presence is open to all people, and you can draw near. It's a living way. It's a way of the resurrected Christ. It's a new way. It's not the old way. Everything that makes the new covenant better than the old covenant is Jesus and His crucifixion and His resurrection and His ascension. In the Old Testament... We always heard these threatenings. Ben has gone through them in Exodus. They got close to the mountain, and it got time for God to give the law. And the thing He said was, you come up to the mountains, but the people, y'all stay away. If you touch the mountain, you'll die. And you can imagine people were like, how close is close? You know, let's not touch the mountain. Where's the mountain start? But now we have a new way. Not that we don't have a reverence fear towards God, but we can approach God with confidence that we will receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And that's what the passage basically says. That because you have this new way, because Jesus has died, because now you can draw near to God through Christ, you need to do these three things. You need to draw near to God in confidence. You need to hold on to your hope, and you need to consider how to spur one another on. The first exhortation is, let us, you see it there, it says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying, draw near. And this is not the first time that he has used this phrase, draw near. And when he's talking about draw near, he's coming close to God, live close to God, have intimate fellowship with God, believe in Him, trust in Him daily, pray to Him regularly, lean upon Him all the time, have this intimate drawing near. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the high priest, the high priest only, one time a year, only one priest at a time could enter into the Holy of Holies. And that was such a scary ordeal. They had, they had bells on his, on his garment so you could hear if he's still alive in there. And they have a rope tied to his foot so that if he was struck dead, they could pull him out. And now God is saying, draw near. Draw near. The way is open all the time. I was in the coffee shop this week uh, meeting with somebody, and this girl that uh, gave us our coffee um, was, you could tell she was a fitness uh, enthusiast, and, I, and she competes in weightlifting. My weight is competitive with anybody, but it's not lifting it. But anyway, uh, when, when you look at that, I asked her, I said, where do you, where do you work out? And she said, well, you know, I go to Delta State, but I work out at any time fitness because, you know, I can go there and work out at 10 o'clock. Now, who wants to work out at 10 o'clock, you know? I've been asleep for an hour. But anyway, but I got to thinking, and I'm going to look at anybody in the room, but I think they ought to rename any time fitness, no time fitness. Because I can guarantee you most of the people who sign up for Anytime Fitness don't go anytime. There are many days, months, weeks where they never ever attend. And what I'm trying to say is you can have a privilege and not take advantage of it. 
You can have an opportunity and not use it. And that's what the writer to Hebrews said. Jesus Christ has opened the way to God for you. And what you need to do is you need to take advantage of it. You need to draw near to God. Live close to Him. Why don't we? Why are we hesitant? Because of our conscience. Our conscience is that light on the dashboard. You know, it's blinking and it indicates you need to do something or something's wrong with your car. You know, you need to get it, you need to have a computer hooked up to it and it'll tell you, you know, what is not functioning. And when we have a guilty conscience, what we need to do is we need to ask God, why is our conscience guilty? And sometimes our conscience is guilty for the wrong reason. Sometimes there's no reason for us to feel guilty. It's a false guilt, but sometimes we have real guilt. Uh, Clint referred to this last week in Sunday school where R.C. Sproul had this girl come to him. I think she had, was either living with her boyfriend, uh, having intimacy before marriage, or either she had had an abortion because of that, and she came to R.C. and said, you know, I've gone to all kinds of psychologists, psychiatrists, and I still feel guilty. And Sproul said, well, why do you feel guilty? She said, because I, I did this. And he said, you feel guilty because you are guilty. And the only person that can take away the guilty feelings is the same person that can take away your guilt. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to go to Him and you need to ask Him to forgive you. And He will. And your conscience will be clean. The writer to Hebrews talks about a sprinkled conscience and a washed body. And he's talking about baptism for sure. And he's not talking about the mode of baptism. He's not talking about baptism as a sacerdotal experience that the sign is always created when the symbol is given. He's talking about what the catechism and the larger catechism talks about, confession talks about, is improving on your baptism. That when you're tempted, you need to remember your baptism. What did it signify? That you belong to the Lord. That God has washed you clean. That He has sprinkled, not immersed, sprinkled your heart. He has washed you clean. And you can go before your conscience and say, I have no reason. I have, I have trusted in Christ. I've been baptized in Christ. I have confessed my sins. That's what Luther did. Luther faced the devil and he was very serious that, that the devil was a real personal being. So real that, that he would, you know, call him names and tell him to, to leave and he would throw an inkwell at him. But oftentimes, all he would do is he'd stand up in the face of baptism and say, I am baptized. He didn't mean just the act, but he had the reality. My sins are washed away. I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. I am God's child. My conscience is clean. The hymn writer says this. The hymn writer says, Let not conscience make you linger nor of fitness fondly dream, all the fitness he requireth is to fill his need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's wising beam. You see, Jesus has opened the way. And you can always come back. You can always go home. That's the prodigal son. 
took his father's money, wasted it, was poor, no friends. And he came back, not because he it was better, he came to his senses and he realized how good his father was and that his father would treat him well. And he ran back. And what did he find? A father running towards him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, it says in Peter. The second thing I think we need to realize is not only do we need to draw near to God, we need to hold on to the hope. The hope we confess. The hope we profess. Unwavering. Unswervingly. Hold on and don't let go. Uh, but the question would be, what is the hope that they had confessed? Now if you think about this being in the context of baptism, which I think you have to, you have to realize they had made some profession of faith, or, you know, we would say he's talking to Jewish converts who have been converted as adults. And so he's saying, what did you profess? Well, you had to profess, one, you're a sinner. One, you had to profess that Jesus Christ was the Messiah who came to take away the sins of the world. You had to believe that he would forgive you. You had to believe that uh, He would be with you and not leave you nor forsake you. You had to believe all these things. And what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't let go. Don't let go. I am doing a series of, well, not a series. I'm doing a communicants class. I have 14 in there, arranging all sorts of ages. And hopefully in a couple of weeks, a group of them will stand up here and they will profess their faith. The first question that everybody who joins this church, if you're a member of this church, you took it. I admit that I'm a sinner and I deserve the wrath and curse of God. I'm a sinner. My nature is to sin. I need God to change my nature. I sin by thought, word, and deed. I sin by what I do and what I fail to do. Every part of me is tainted with sin, and I deserve the wrath and curse of God. But number two is, I believe that Jesus, the Son of God, as Savior, has paid for my sin. I believe that Jesus is not only God, but man, and He came because man couldn't make it right with Him, but God could, and so it had to be the God-man. And God in the flesh died for me, I believe that. And I commit myself to live for His glory, but I need the help of the Holy Spirit to help me live a life that becomes Christ. And then I believe in the church, and I promise to serve the church to my best of my ability with my time and my talents. Everybody who joins the church professes that. And what this is saying is, don't let go. You never pass that. You never pass the fact you're a sinner who believes in Christ, who needs daily to commit himself to live for his glory by the help of the Holy Spirit. Hold on. I feel like we need the high school seniors in here because they'll be tempted in college like no one knows. They'll be tempted to believe everything that we confess in the Apostles' Creed is a fairy tale. God a creator made something out of nothing, made everything out of nothing. You believe that? And you want to say, well, you believe nothing came from nothing. 
And I like my theory better than your theory. You believe Jesus was born of a virgin? You know that doesn't happen. You believe he died to take your punishment? You believe he rose again? Dead, a dead man rose? And you believe he's ascended into heaven and he's seated on the right hand of God and he's interceding for you? And you believe he's coming back? And you believe the Holy Spirit is operative in your life? And the culture and the professors and the theologies and everything else will try to let you make you let go of your hope. And what the writer is saying is hold on. Hold on. You know, when we say the Apostles' Creed, I, I like to go slow. And I, I always try to read it as well as recite it. Just helps me concentrate better. But you know what you're saying when you say the Apostles' Creed? I stand with thousands of people, millions of people, over thousands of years that have believed this. Men and women who are willing to give their life for this truth. And this is what I believe. And I'm going to weakly say it so I can hold on. And we hold on not because of anything in us. We hold on because God is faithful. I was listening to a sermon, and I think it was John MacArthur's sermon. But he talked about the story his dad used to tell him all the time about a dad who had a meeting and his son wanted to go with him and ride with him, and he dropped him off at the 10 cent store. That had to be, now it's a dollar store, you know. You don't have any 10 cent store. And so you know it was a long time ago. 10 cent store meant, you know, no telephone, no cell phone, no, you know. And the dad said, I'm going to go to my meeting, take about 30 minutes, be right back, and you wait for me here at the 10 cent store right outside. An hour went by, two hours went by, three hours went by. The dad had gone to the meeting, but his car wouldn't crank, had to have uh, help to get his car started. He finally got there, but he was worried about what his son was to be doing, and he found his son sitting outside waiting for him. And he said, son, were you nervous? And he said, no, you said you were coming back. That's what it's saying. He's coming back. He's going to keep his promises. I read, I read this. This is just in Hebrews. Embrace your hope. Hold fast to your hope. Be a hope-filled person. Hope in God because God made promises to you and He is faithful. He promised to write the law in your heart. Hebrews 10 he promised to work in you what is well-pleasing in His sight, Hebrews 13. He has promised to remember your sins no more, Hebrews 10. He has promised that we will be perfected by a single sacrifice, Hebrews 10. He has promised He'll never leave us or forsake us, Hebrews 13. And He has promised to bring out of our pain something good, Hebrews 12. God keeps His promises. You hold on to your hope. So, one last thing that we look at, not only do we draw near and hold on to the hope we confess, but we consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Now, this could be a sermon in and of itself. I started to make it one, but I want to emphasize several words and we won't get to every part of this verse. But he says, 
Consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. I want you to think of that word consider, ponder, meditate, think about. And what are you thinking about? Thinking about how you can spur somebody else on. I'm thinking about. He says part of being a Christian and drawing near to God is looking around you and say, how can I spur that person on to love and good deeds? How can I get him involved? The passages in the Bible that talk about one another are unbelievable. Jesus even said, have this attitude in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus that he considered himself, that he considered others more important than himself. He served, he gave, he ministered, he lived, he died for us. And what we're to do as a body of Christ it's to consider how can I cons how can I think about Clint and spur him on to more good deeds and more love and how can I get Richie to do that? How you know thinking about? Can you imagine if we started thinking about each other instead of ourselves? To have a group around you and say how can I make him love God and others more? The second word is spur. Or the Greek word is provoke. Uh, provoke each other. The only other time it's mentioned in Scripture is mentioned in a way of a negative way where there was a confrontation between Paul and Barnabas and one of them provoked the other, made them mad. That's the word that is used here. How do we provoke one another to good things? How do we provoke somebody to be involved in ministry? Does that mean, you know, does that mean I, I step on your toes or irritate you? I, I can say that some of you need provoking. That you aren't involved in a level that can do you what this passage wants to do. Where you have people who know you and pray for you and love you and correct you and encourage you. He says, spur one another on. Encourage one another. All the more as you see the day of Christ appearing. Encourage one another. We're good at criticizing each other. Saying, oh, that won't work. You did that wrong. Why do we do that? But encouragement. I can tell you that, you know, people ask me the secret of uh, staying at a church for 40 years. I said, because I know all the secrets. You know, that's not it. It's because the church is so encouraging. It's not that I've never received any criticism, but for 40 years I've gotten basically nothing but encouragement from you. I can remember when I was first a minister, y'all don't remember, might not remember some of you young folks, John Sledge. John Sledge and Bobby Barber moved me to Cleveland, and Bobby had those encouraging words, Starnes, you don't have any furniture, you got junk. <laughs> but one day, it wasn't very long that I was in the ministry, Wilson had gone, and John must have realized I was under stress or discouraged, and he never came in my office, you know. He came in and sat down, and he almost said something like this, I don't know what everybody else is saying, but I think you're doing a good job. 
I got a drawer full of notes because we need encouragement. We need encouragement. And so he says this, which most ministers make the point of the passage, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. If we considered others, spurred one another on, encouraged one another, people would not make it a habit of staying away. They would see the great need for it. Not to take them off the hook because they're they're to be involved as well, but it's to put us in a place of, hey, part of the reason the church is declining nationwide is because we're not doing our job. We're not doing what God has called us to do. But we need to be telling people that, you know, when you live by yourself it's, uh, and live the Christian life by yourself, you can't make it. You can't do it. We're going to sing this hymn, but I want you to hear these words before you sing it, so don't open your hymn book. We are the body of which the Lord is head, called to obey Him, now risen from the dead. He wills us be a family, diverse yet truly one. Oh, let us give our gifts to God, and so shall His work on earth be done. We are a temple, the Spirit's dwelling place, formed in great weakness, a cup to hold God's grace. We die alone, for on its own each ember loses fire. Yet joined in one, the flame burns on to give warmth and light and to inspire. Let's pray. Father, help us to be what we ought to be. Help us to draw near to you in confidence, boldness that you hear and care. Uh, Help us to hold on to our faith and not let the world and all its philosophies and all its uh, teaching and commercials make us lose a grip on the faith. Help us to see our responsibility to one another. Help us to encourage one another, spur each other on to love and good deeds. We love you. We thank you for our church. Make it what it ought to be, even more like Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.